If you think about a company that is really embracing recognition and gratitude and appreciation, and it's really working, then they can bring that home to their families and loved ones and friends and use that at home too and cause a ripple effect in that way. But I think that in terms of within the organization, I expect that the ripple effect will include things like lower turnover because people are more committed and more excited about being at work. Welcome back to Measures of Gratitude from Work Human. I'm Mike Lovett. This is episode three. And after two episodes, I think I can finally define gratitude with confidence. Gratitude, noun, a culminating appreciation for all of the interactions you have with other people throughout your life. Merriam-Webster, Oxford, consider this my official submission. In this episode, we're going to talk about the place where so many of those interactions take place, work. All right. Did everyone do their homework? Dr. Elizabeth Stokoe's assignment was to transcribe a conversation. So I looked at the transcript I had with her for our interview. And it is weird to read your words from a conversation. Let me tell you. Before we started recording, I know I asked her about her recent vacation. Then I got right down to telling her not to quit out of the browser window too quickly because I was afraid the files on the recording would disappear. Then I told her this show finally had a name, and I was excited about that. Then I asked my first question. All in one minute. Nailed it. I was nervous. It was an interview. And Elizabeth and I were meeting face-to-face via Zoom, which isn't all that strange in any reality, considering we're an ocean apart. But then I thought, well, this is how I met all of my coworkers, and many of them live within the same area code as I do. And I imagine you might be in a similar boat. That new style of introduction we've all grown fairly accustomed to is a microcosm of the new workplace. Hybrid work is here to stay, and how we interact and work with people is radically different than it was 20 months ago. And then there's this, the great resignation, a massive wave of employees making clear that they are burnt out. And they're ready to leave their jobs in unprecedented numbers to work for companies that actually express a culminating feeling of appreciation for them, their lives, and the work they do. Because right now, they don't feel that way. Hence, this podcast existing. So with all of the changing dynamics of the workplace, how does gratitude find its way in? What are the conditions it needs to thrive? And what can it do when it does thrive? For that, I wanted to talk to someone who has been observing workplace dynamics for years. Enter our guest for this week. My name is Emily Heafy, and I'm an associate professor at University of Massachusetts Amherst. And I have been studying workplace relationships and positive organizational scholarship for almost 20 years. Emily Heafy, associate professor of management at UMass Amherst, including for a one producer of this podcast, Sarah Blasnalis. Emily has been studying and producing research on workplace relationships since she was a grad student at Harvard Business School. And when I asked her, she still remembered the exact moment when she knew it would be her pursuit. I was involved in interviews that became part of a case study, 
And I remember this moment really vividly in which we were interviewing a CEO and he was talking about his relationship with actually someone who was helping him learn about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And he said that she saved his life. And I was like, what What do you mean? It's a really extreme thing to say. But what he meant is that his son had passed away unexpectedly and tragically. And the relationship that he formed with her helped him through that really difficult period. And so I knew that relationships could be vital, like literally vital. And I wanted to understand that kind of moment and try to make them happen more often for people in the workplace. Because work isn't always easy, but it can be a wonderful place. And so I wanted to try to make that happen as much as I could. Not every relationship you have with a coworker will be life-saving or even result in friendship. And that is perfectly fine. But how can we make these relationships from someone on your team you work with every week to someone you interact with once a month as positive as possible? That's the goal. And here's a way to kickstart it. In 2005, Emily co-authored a Harvard Business Review article entitled, How to Play to Your Strengths. It suggested a new approach to personal and professional development. The idea that receiving affirmation is a powerful way for us to grow, particularly when it comes in the form of stories, describing moments when we're at our best. That research stemmed from a teaching from one of the other co-authors, Dr. Robert E. Quinn. And it's called the Reflected Best Self Exercise. And through that process, people solicit positive stories about when they were at their best from other people. Then they receive those stories from people who know them across different parts of their lives, read through them, and then write a narrative about it. And Bob was finding in the classroom that it was having this really transformative effect on people. And we wanted to understand why. And so part of that work was saying, okay, well, when is it that people get that kind of positive affirmation? And when it does happen, what kind of effect does it have? And so one of the things that we wrote about at that time was we talked about these as being jolts, like sort of enough new information that it causes us or can cause us to revise how we think about ourselves. And so unfortunately, (laughs) like that doesn't happen enough. So it happens in this exercise and it was really impactful. And we hear that all the time for people who've gone through this reflected best self exercise. But too often it happens at retirement parties or these kind of rare celebrations. And so we really wanted to try to make it more frequent. And so one of the interesting findings from that research, which actually is still in the process of being published, is some colleagues and I, we analyzed the narratives that people wrote based on the positive feedback that they got. And in this particular study of MBA students, we found that their narratives before they got their feedback kind of resembled gendered stereotypes. So women saw themselves as more connecting and men saw themselves as more mobilizing, so kind of taking charge. And then when they received this positive feedback from multiple people in their lives, those gender differences disappeared. And so one of the things that we think is happening through this is that this information, which is these positive stories, which we learn about too infrequently, when we get a lot of them, it helps interrupt some of the self-stereotyping that can occur just in everyday life and help people see their strengths in different ways. And I think that is really exciting. It is to the benefit of every company if their employees lean into their strengths and grow. But as this exercise made clear, some people don't realize what those strengths are and won't without a prompting like this. Even Emily didn't. 
And I can tell you a personal story. So the first time I taught this in the classroom, I was like, okay, I've written about this exercise. I better do it if I'm asking my students to do it. And it was transformative in that particular way. Like a lot of my stories came back and talked about me being a leader. And I had never seen myself as being a leader. I definitely saw myself as being a connector. Again, very gender stereotypical. But once I got that feedback, I noticed opportunities a little bit differently. So not too long after that, I had the opportunity to lead a group. And instead of saying, no, (laughs) I don't have time for that, or it's not the most important thing, or I'm not really a leader, so that's not for me. I said, well, (laughs) people told me that they see me as a leader. What if I just take this? What's going to happen? And I actually loved it. I totally loved being in a formal leadership role. And I felt that I learned that I could enact that leadership role in a way that fit with my strengths. And it has really been transformative. And I think that's what's so exciting about this process of getting affirmative stories from multiple people in your life is that it can just redirect you just a little bit. But over time, that slight redirection can have a big impact. Gratitude on top of everything else is a professional development strategy. In fact, I have yet to hear a reason why a company should not practice gratitude. Companies like Results and Gratitude has a proven ability to reduce turnover, increase productivity, and make us feel better as people. So why isn't it widely adopted? It seems like common sense. Why isn't it common practice? It's such a good question. Part of what research has shown us is how complicated these processes are, actually. So in getting ready for today's conversation, I was looking up a couple of studies that really highlight the psychological complexity of things like gratitude and appreciation. And so, for example, there's a study by Erica Boothby and Vanessa Bones. The title of their article is Why a Simple Act of Kindness is Not as Simple as It Seems. And so what they found is that people really underestimate the effect of positive compliments to other people. They don't expect that it's going to have the positive effect that it does. So they're less likely to actually pay other people compliments because they underestimate the effect it will have. There's another really wonderful study by Kumar and Epley called Undervaluing Gratitude. Expressors misunderstand the consequences of showing appreciation. And it's very similar kinds of findings. So around expressions of gratitude, people underestimate the value of gratitude to other people. They think, oh, well, maybe if I express gratitude, that person will not think as highly of me because they think that whatever they did to deserve gratitude wasn't such a big deal. And so some of this research, I think, really highlights the relational and psychological complexity of compliments and of gratitude. And so just as an example, I think one of the nice things about this training that I'm doing in my class right now is I'm forcing people to do it. You know, I'm like, I'm forcing them to do acts of kindness. I'm forcing them to be grateful for other people and to reflect on what they're grateful for. Now, I'll be the first to admit that I have undervalued the effects of appreciation at points, especially at work, or just not thought of it, which is not better. Maybe you have too. It does feel like we've been led to believe that we don't need to thank people for doing their job, but why not? Especially if they did a really good job. We know that we get the best out of people when we lift them up. So how do we get to a place where that's just the norm? The role of organizations is to normalize it, legitimize it, 
and make it okay. And so leaders certainly have an enormous role in role modeling that. And so that can be the leader at the top of an organization, but it can also be a manager. And so that certainly has an effect. But at the same time, if you have people in power who are role modeling this behavior, it makes it a lot easier but you also don't need special permission to do it. So literally anybody in an organization can be appreciative or convey gratitude to other people. And I think that when you listen to podcasts like this or learn about this research, and lots of people are, it can help change your mindset to help convince you that it's worth it. (laughs) Even though it can feel risky to tell someone you don't know very well what you appreciate about them or what you're grateful for, the payoffs are going to be bigger than you think. We all have a part to play. But did you hear that part in the middle, senior directors, senior vice presidents, and chief officers? All of this is well and good, but it is a lot easier when you're on board too. Because you hold a lot of power and you set the tone. And while people can be redirected by positive feedback and expressions of appreciation, ambivalence or carelessness of word choice, especially from someone in a leadership position, can redirect someone in a negative way. If all people feel is the stress of deadlines, metrics, and goals without appreciation, it creates a spiral. They bring it home. They're less confident, less engaged, and less inspired in the work they're doing, and they're way less likely to practice gratitude. This feeling is a big contributor to the great resignation. Leaders should model this behavior because it won't be driving employees out the door, and it cultivates one of the most important emerging topics in the workplace, something required for gratitude to flourish in the first place, psychological safety. It's something that we've talked a lot about this year. In fact, we released an entire report about it earlier in the summer, and Harvard professor Amy Edmondson defines it as a shared belief that I can bring my full self to work that I will not be humiliated or made to feel less good about myself if I speak up with ideas, with questions, with concerns, and yes, even with mistakes. Cold bird taps and fun workspaces are hyped as company culture, but psychological safety is the real measurement of company culture. And like gratitude, one of the most powerful ways to build psychological safety is through appreciation and interactions. In the workplace, one of the most powerful interactions we have is check-ins with our manager. This is one of the primary ways in a healthy company that you problem solve, receive feedback, and get better at and take pride in what you do. I want to focus on this interaction because as good as it can be, and it can be great, it won't always be positive. Constructive feedback is part of the game. Missing goals is part of the game. But delivering and receiving feedback, especially that of the constructive variety, is tricky. I've heard you should deliver a feedback sandwich where positive feedback, the bread, surrounds the negative feedback, which I guess is the actual contents of the sandwich. Emily thinks that those components are right, but maybe we should think of it as an open face sandwich instead. I think part of what the Reflected Best Self teaches us is in order to be receptive to ways that we are being asked to change, we also need to have a sense of hope and optimism. So part of that hope and optimism is feeling confident about your ability to do something. (laughs) And so that feedback sandwich you're rated, it doesn't always work and it's not always appropriate, 
but it is helpful to feel valued. So if you're feeling valued, it's easier to take in and consider feedback about ways that you need to change. The relationship with a person who's providing the feedback can do some of that work, but part of the logic of the feedback sandwich is that if you're going to tell somebody that they need to work on something, it's helpful to also know what they should keep doing. What are they doing well? But on the other hand, if there's a really serious problem (laughs) and, for example, a person is on the verge of losing their job, then it's really best to just focus on that and say, listen, we really need you to improve on this or you're not going to be able to continue working here and to not pull any punches. I think that I am a big believer in being clear and direct. And so I think that we're not doing anybody any favors by beating around the bush about things that need to change. I think that's why like providing people with a context about the effects of their actions can be really helpful because it can help convey that you see them. You're really observing. You've thought carefully about what you're saying. And I also think it is helpful to be able to have ready also what people do well, so what their strengths are. And one of the things that we talk about when we're in teaching the reflected best self is that sometimes people say, well, does this mean you should never focus on things you're not good at? And that's not true. But there are some things you need to be able to be competent at to be able to continue to be a part of an organization or to continue in a job. And so having a sense of whether if there's critical feedback, knowing where it falls in the priority of the things that you need to do is, can be helpful. I put this question to Elizabeth Stoko as well, our guest from episode two. If we need to share feedback that is not inherently positive, how can we possibly create a meaningful interaction out of that? When it comes to giving feedback in a workplace environment, here's just at least one way of thinking about it. The first thing is it's going to be hard if you're going to give negative feedback, full stop, because most people don't like to hear any. We like to be able to agree. And and when it's about something personal to us, that's hard. So. One way to do it is to ask people about their own performance first. So say, how do you think it went? And some people, depending on the environment, people will find it hard to evaluate themselves as well. But what you'll tend to see is that if you ask somebody to self-evaluate, they will do what you call that feedback sandwich. They'll probably give something good that happened or something a bit negative. And then it's their topic, the negative thing. And then you can kind of build on that. And you might be able to agree with their negative evaluation, but actually say, actually, it wasn't that bad. Actually, this part of that, I agree with you that this could have improved, but this other thing, I think you actually did really well. So I think rather than think I have to give feedback and I have to say what my evaluation is, it's actually a better idea, or at least one possibility is to try and elicit as much as you can from the person themselves, because people tend to be (laughs) self-deprecating. And then you can tease out those negative self-reflections. And, you know, a lot of us are all also pretty good at being negative about ourselves and try to actually get rid of some of those negative things and and turn them into more positive things and just think how can this be constructive how can we have a conversation where we're almost maximizing agreement and one way to do that rather than say that you didn't perform very well on this thing is to say how do you think you did on this thing and then take it from there and then again you're using if you're a good listener every nuance of the way the person is telling you their own self-reflection and feeling your way, wading into the water that way, taking what they say and, and building on that. Other work interactions where psychological safety and thus gratitude can be tested is in problem solving, collaborating, and decision making. Discussions can get contentious. People can disagree. How can gratitude fit into that? 
Some might say it shouldn't. Those are the kinds of interactions that shouldn't have an emotional influence. Just cold, hard business sense. Emiliana Simon-Thomas calls BS on that. Yeah, I mean, here's the deal. Like it or not, emotions are always affecting and influencing our decision making. We have many reviews of how a range of different emotional experiences direct or guide our perceptual apparatus, our social inclinations in ways that help us meet the needs or the opportunities that are associated with that particular emotional state. The trick is that actually, if we learn about what emotions we're feeling, and how emotions tend to guide us, and how emotions can serve our decisions in constructive and productive ways, we can leverage that to be more successful and deliberate and intentional. And that does often get mistaken as, you know what, we don't know about emotions, we don't know what they're doing, so let's just stifle them completely and leave them at home, their baggage, let's try to act like we don't have them at all. That's impossible. That just our body doesn't work that way. They're happening and they're influencing our experiences regardless of whether we want them to. And to the extent that we try to stifle or suppress them, they're actually even worse, especially the unpleasant one, right? If we're stifling our frustration or or irritability or our sadness or our sense of despair or feeling offended by something that a colleague has said, the physiological portion of that emotion actually is accentuated and extended for longer and ends up being something that puts us at cardiovascular risk at chronic levels. So yeah, emotions are there. They're influencing our decisions, whether we like it or not. And so the task is to figure out how to understand them well enough and embrace them and leverage and channel them to help us respond in the most constructive and productive ways. Emiliana went on to describe that when she and her team elicit positive emotions in the laboratory, people have a broader capacity to think about a scenario. They see more possibilities and they can come up with more creative solutions to a challenge than if they're left in a neutral or worse state. Emily Heafy sees leaning into emotions as another way of unlocking the potential of an employee and a company. Emotions are part and parcel of everything that we do, and there is no way we can get rid of them. I am a big believer that our emotions can teach us a lot about what we think and feel and should be talking about at work. I think that self-awareness, being the ability to notice what emotions we have and how our own and other emotions are affecting us, is incredibly important. And if one can develop good self-awareness, it can be a superpower at work. It sounds kind of easy, but I think having that kind of presence of mind and maturity and skill and social support to make sense of one's emotions is incredibly, incredibly powerful and overlooked. So I think that's something I would really encourage. The other thing is that I think it is really powerful to be able to be present for, be comfortable with positive and negative emotions. And all relationships experience conflict, all organizations experience conflict. So the more you're able to be comfortable with those, I think that too can be extremely powerful. 
because not everybody can. And if you can help people work through difficult emotions or difficult moments, it can be a real gift to other people, but also really powerful. Personally, I find it really easy to think about gratitude and how I would practice it with friends and family. But it's different when it's the people you work with or even for, even just slightly. And that's okay. Your company is not your family. And if they're suggesting otherwise, red flag emojis. I can say confidently that our recognition program has helped. In a still disconnected world, it's nice to have something designed for people to appreciate your work and help you grow, make you feel connected. And it makes it easier for you to do the same for them. It's just another way to kickstart the practice of gratitude, make it a habit. Now, I feel like I have a better understanding of gratitude and what it can do and how to communicate. And I'm going to start to think about how to apply it. How does it affect the way I live and work and talk to people? And as we've learned, gratitude, the culmination of your interactions with people, is on a spectrum. Those interactions will vary in frequency, openness, and candor. The hope is that you take advantage of as many opportunities that you do get to do what you can to create a positive interaction, an overall positive experience, or develop a positive relationship. And you hope that it's reciprocated and just keeps on going. So send that compliment. Acknowledge and appreciate someone in email, Slack, who cares? Just be genuine. You might provide a positive redirection. And yeah, It has plenty of business benefits, which should be enough for more companies to make it part of their culture. But the bigger reason is you practice all of this at work because sometimes life comes barreling in and gratitude's the only thing you've got. That's next week. We had multiple guests on the show this week. Thank you to Emily Heafy, who joined for the first time. You can check out her work at emilyheafy.com, H-E-A-P-H-Y. We will link to that and her research in the Harvard Business Review in the show notes. Thank you again to Elizabeth Stoko and Emiliana Simon-Thomas, who returned. We have links to their work in the show notes as well. Measures of Gratitude is a production of Work Human. It is edited and mixed by Rob Valois and written and produced by Sarah Blaznalis and me with additional support from Sarah Mulcahy. Thank you for listening. I will talk to you next week for our final episode. Bye.